Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Hugh Morris. I'm a senior research partner at Gen, and it's my pleasure to be able to chair this event today. Now, I can only do that thanks to the generosity of our sponsors, who are Legion, uh, and uh, I offer them uh, my thanks for being able to conduct the uh, webinar today. Now, looking at the agenda, it's my job to get out of the way as quickly as possible and hand over to our speaker. Uh, some housekeeping notes. The slides are available to download in the chat and on the website. Uh, we'll be holding a 20-minute Q&A session after the presentation, so please make sure to use the GoToWebinar facility, the chat, to send your questions to me. I will then feed them into the conversation with Roger. So, without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce Roger Weatherby on the importance of relationship banking in the uh, digital world. The floor is yours, sir. Well, thank you, Hugh, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Um, Hugh, just thought it would be a good idea if I give you a tiny bit of background about myself and then Weatherby's. I, um, I joined the army. I was in the army for about four years. This is back in uh, back in the day of 1980 to 1986. Um, and after um, a lot of fun, I then joined Casanova, uh, and I was at Casanova for 11 years, including um, three years in Sydney and three years in New York, and then back to London for about five years. And um, I then joined Weatherby's as a non-executive director in about 1992. Um, I went to London Business School, did a master's degree in finance, having left Casanova and then joined uh, in 1997, becoming the finance director of Weatherby's Bank and uh, Weatherby's, um, which is the a racing business, which I'll explain in a little bit in, in a while, uh, and then took over as chief exec of Weatherby's Bank in 2000 and uh, to this day. So that's really my, my sort of very quick background. For those of you who know nothing about Weatherbiz, and I don't think many of you may do, Weatherbiz itself started in 1770. Um, so we're 253 years old. And my ancestor was a solicitor and basically was working for the Jockey Club in the UK, doing a lot of the administration for racing, taking entries, um, the colors of the owner, registration of thoroughbreds. We actually own the stud book and every stud book in the entire world is based on the Weatherby stud book that was set up in 1791. <laughs> um, so, um, and, and what happened is that certainly in the UK is that everybody in, with an involvement in racing, for example, all the owners or the, certainly the senior owners, trainers, jockeys would have an account and would have had an account at Weatherby's. Now this wasn't a bank account, it was like having an account with a club and they funded that account with probably 500, 1,000 pounds or a bit more and then automatically we would have debited that account with the expenses including jockeys riding fees and registration fees and if they were lucky enough to win prize money um, then the money was automatically credited to their account. Now we did this for 200 years and up until 1994 we didn't have a banking license for this, this operation. And, and the sort of question came, were we actually taking deposits? Uh, we went to the Bank of England, they said, well, we're not entirely sure, but luckily in those days, it was a bit easier to get a banking license. And as I said, we had been sort of doing it anyway for 
for a couple of hundred years. So we got our banking license in 1994 and then slightly scratched our heads because we didn't realize why people would come to us um, because they'd been banking with the very large names, the high street banks for all their lives. Why would they come to little old Weatherby's? And their answer was, well, look, we never had a choice. And if this was, as you say, the mid nineties, so for those of you who remember, this is when the big banks were closing down their branches, uh, like they are now, but in sort of market towns, they were going call center routes abroad. They were, the service was, was going um, badly wrong. And, um, and then they were trying to recover the fact that they'd gone free current account banking by selling products, insurance, you name it, to, to unsuspecting customers. So there was a lot of anger and a lot of poor service out there. So in fact, um, people came to us, said, look, you know, we've been banking, we've been with you on the racing side for generations. We trust you, we understand you, you understand us. Therefore, we'd love to do some banking with you. And in terms of size, back in the late 90s, we probably had about 10 million pounds on deposit, which was all of that sort of really the racing funds um, that, that the clients had. We have um, got now about one and a half billion of funds of deposits. We lend out about 60% of that, mainly uh, residential mortgages backed by property, obviously. Um, uh, we also have an, a small asset finance division, uh, Arco, they lend about 200 million, they, that's a SME lender, but again, it's very much around um, uh, bespoke underwriting rather than computer says yes or no. Uh, Weatherby's Hamilton um, is our insurance. Um, we have a 50% uh, joint venture with Weatherby's Hamilton, we are a partner. Again, very much a high touch uh, traditional insurer where you can insure um, art, your house, your estate, your car, um, the nanny's car and everything else. Um, and then Weatherby's Racing Bank is still the original, if you know what I mean, where we have about 10,000 people who, who bank with us and they purely for their horse racing operations. But mainly what we're talking about today is, is the private bank uh, where we have about 4,000 private bank families that we deal with um, looked after by, as it says here on the slide, 263 members of staff. And it's very, very high touch. Um, and uh, so that gives you a bit of a feel uh, of what we do. Now, of course, the question is around relationship banking in a digital world. And I think the first thing I would say is that this is not either relationship banking or digital. I think we all realize that life now is a combination of the two. Um, and indeed, when I came up from uh, the country yesterday, you know, I was buying my train ticket on, on, on train line and getting here on the taxi app. And, you know, that is part of life. But I think we also all realize that it is a, um, at the moment, it is still very much a digital world. It's a very simple, it's a more of a simple transaction. It's a simple piece, whereas compared to a much more complex um, question that you're trying to, or solution you're trying to get through. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a straight payment to one individual, yes, of course, we can now make payments to uh, a, a group of people, whether it's sitting around a, and sharing a restaurant bill or, or anything else. And of course, that will 
continue to evolve and the technology will continue to evolve and get better and then throw in a good decent wedge of AI and and we think we'll do it will do even better in five ten years time but I think let's not forget that the human being is a supercomputer in their own right and I think it will be a very long time before um, the digital computer can really take on the complexity that that a, that a banker um, can can handle. Um, I think the other thing moving on from that is that whole piece around the rigidity and flexibility. Um, uh, sorry, Sasha, if you go back to the, the previous slide. Um, I think what we're finding is that, again, if you have a simple transaction and it goes well, that's fine. If you want to pay somebody, and I was paying somebody with our mobile app in the back of the taxi as I was coming here this morning. Um, it's very simple, it's very easy, but as soon as you want to do something slightly different or something particularly goes wrong, that's when you need that relationship. And we've all, we've all come across that. Um, we had one the other day when we were talking to uh, a supposed client who had all the information uh, that we would have normally required to get through security. But the tone of that conversation with that client just didn't feel right to the people, to our people at the end of the phone. It didn't, it didn't sound, it sounded like them. They pretended it was a dodgy line, et cetera, et cetera. And of course we've all heard these stories, but it was the tone and what they were saying, what they were asking for, it just didn't compute. Um, and I think that's, that's, uh, one example. The other example, again, we probably all had it um, uh, when, when you know, whether we're buying something on a on an online site or buying something through a bank. If there's a problem with it, yes, you it was very easy to get through and buy the machine. If it something goes wrong, suddenly it's impossible to get hold of anybody um, who can talk you through the issue. And we've all been, you know, sitting on the phone, particularly through COVID you know, for, for, for an hour at a time um, and, and still then not being able to get through to somebody. We've had another example of one of our clients who um, put some money with a well-known foreign exchange uh, business uh, that, that you probably can all guess at. Um, it was nothing wrong with them. And in fact, their account wasn't defrauded, but the systems thought it had. They put quite a lot of money, about 25,000 pounds into this account to fund a family ski holiday. Uh, it took them six months to get that money released because the, the digital bank had, had frozen the account on the, on the basis that they thought it had been a fraud. Um, as I said, there wasn't a fraud, but in six months, our client never spoke to a human being. It took them six months to get the money back and to get it released. And they never were able to talk to a human being, pick up the phone and get it sorted. With us, 97% of our customers get through to us within three rings, um, which is pretty extraordinary. And as I said, you then, having got picked up the phone, they're then speaking to a human being who uh, is equivalent in, my, in, 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 in our view of that supercomputer. Um, and I think we all still realize that at the moment, digital banking is still very much, to the same point, transactional. 
it's got no advice really in it at all. Um, so, you know, another example for us would have been a situation where we had um, an elderly card, forgot their pin, put it in wrong at a petrol station. As it happened, as it happened, um, it wasn't quite, it was quite close to where we were at. And one of our bankers got in their car, drove to the petrol station, calmed the poor person down because they got stuck at the petrol station. The petrol station said that they were going to call the police, etc., etc. Sorted it all out for them, gave them a cup of tea, and sent them on their way. And it's that sort of piece of extra care that I think we all we all want. And I think the other piece is that it takes so long when there is a problem. It takes you two seconds to buy the thing. It takes you an hour, a day, or whatever, say over six months to sort out if there is a problem. And then we had another case of, um, for example, a, a, a farmer, a local farmer, didn't like our client. <laughs> they'd, had a, they'd had a neighborly fight for 20 years and was selling their field next door. So they rang up, he rang them up on Sunday, the farmer, saying, I'm selling my land. Tomorrow, if you want to buy it, you've got 24 hours to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to put it on auction. And our client rang us up on the Sunday night, and we managed to get the deal done within 24 hours buying this the, the, the land, which obviously affected their family for the rest of their generations. Um, that's just not possible in the digital world. Um, I think what is really important around relationship banking. Is, is building up the full picture. It's not just having a relationship with the primary account holder, it's with their wider family, the next generation and the generation after that, and getting a full picture. I just don't believe in digital banking we can have that full picture. Yeah, maybe in 10 years time, but still it's, it doesn't get, you don't really get under the skin of what the family wants to do, how the family, reacts how uh, the relationships within the family and, and what people are trying to achieve through that whole financial um, piece. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, um, you know, you've got to have both. I think the piece around private banking and relationship banking is having that combination. So when I talk to our guys, we talk about 100% digital and 100% human. It cannot be, oh, I have a wonderful relationship with my bank, but their technology is not great. It's got to be, I have an extraordinary relationship with my bank, they understand me, I can get through to them straight away, and their technology is fantastic. Because sometimes we want to use the mobile app. Sometimes we want to do the online. Sometimes you want to be in the back of the cab, not talk to somebody and just get it done. But the time when you do have a complex transaction, something that you want advice and to do on the longer term, or when something goes wrong, you've got to be able to pick up the phone to somebody who knows who you are, understands you, and has built up that relationship. And I think the more we work, live, and breathe in this digital world with our, with our iPhone in front of us or our other phones are available, um, going through, 
you know, life, then we, I think, value even more that human touch. Um, it is it is absolutely key, and, and and busy people, the people who we look after, they're busy, they're successful people. They don't have the time to sit on the phone or to play around with their computer when 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 things and, and not get the right answer. So relationship banking is key. I think it will become even more key in the future, but it's always going to be backed up by fantastic technology. And I think that that is uh, Hugh, <laughs> my my short short spiel. But I think that that's how we're going to work, and that how it's going to work not only in banking, but I think in in uh, in other parts of the world. That's brilliant. <clears throat> Thank you very much indeed, Roger. Um, so, building on some of your themes, yeah, banking is a pretty crowded market at the moment, and you you've told some lovely stories of, uh, you know, spot examples of uh, personal service. But say, taking that up a level, what would you define as uh, the criteria that makes Weatherby stand out from the crowd? Um, when we set up the bank, as I said, we were not sure as to why people would come to us. And, and therefore, what we said was we want to be a bank like no other bank. Um, and really, really listen to what people want. I think we, you know, banking is not complicated. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to be to be in banking. We all have and have to have a banking relationship. So we know what we want, which is very quick, very easy transactions for 90% of the time, and 10% of the time, somebody that you really trust is going to do the right thing by you and not just try and flog you a product. I think that what we, because we're a private company, 100% owned um, through the family, we have the luxury of being able to be patient and long-term. I think I genuinely believe and say to our customers that if my next generation of my family and the next generation of our staff have a successful profitable relationship with your children, then that's good enough for me. And I think when people really trust that that's, it's not a marketing spiel, it is reality, it is the truth, then we found people giving us more of their banking and, and, and quicker than we ever, we ever expected. So sorry, long-winded answer to your question. But I think we are family owned, we are about going the extra mile and building up really long-term successful relationships. Um, and not trying to um, flog products or sell products. None of our staff have any commission or, or sort of brokerage sales or, or any sort of bonus like that. It's very much about building a relationship and you get that long-term relationship. Henry Cater asks a very specific question, uh, which is, do you provide banking facilities for charities? Yes, we do. What we tend to do, what we tend to do is that we are, um, we provide um, banking for families, individuals and their families and related uh, businesses and charities. Um, therefore, would we take on a charity that was um, 
where we had none of the trustees had a banking relationship with us and it was a completely standalone account? Probably not. But if it was part of a wider family relationship, then we absolutely would. Very good. Uh, Stephen Greenfields observes and asks, uh, thank you, very interesting talk, Roger, and he's absolutely right there. Um, for newcomers, what does the universe of private banks look like, and where does Weatherby sit within that? Private banks compare with street, high street banks on loan pricing and investment returns, for example. How do private banks withstand competition from high street banks? Um, uh, so there's a number of questions there. So universe of private banks and where do Weatherby sit within that? How do private banks compare with the high street banks for loan pricing and the like? Uh, and how do you withstand competition from the high street banks? Um, okay, well, we'll start with the first question. In the UK, there are, we, we see ourselves as part of four, really. Hor & Co is a partnership. They've been going for 400 years, great bank. Uh, I have a lot of friends who, who are part of the family there. Um, and they would be about four or five times larger, larger than us. Um, you then have Arbuthnot Latham, um, uh, Hamden Bank uh, is a bank that's quite new, it used to be called Scoban, um, sort of mainly Scottish based, um, probably four or five years old. And, and then, if I may say so, so, ourselves. So it's a pretty small universe. And you go, well, hang on, well, what about Coots? Um, and then the private arms of, of the larger banks, whether it's Barclays Private Bank, HSBC Private Bank, and obviously Coots is part of the NatWest crew. Um, those are obviously all owned. The rest of them are all owned by these, you know, by large businesses. And they tend to force you or lead you into having significant investments with them. So you would need to move a significant portfolio of investments to these private banks for them to take you on. We've lost the likes of Child & Co, Adam & Co, Drummond, etc. They've all been subsumed into originally what was the RBS group, which is now obviously called NatWest. Um, so the competition in the, purely in the UK is, is very narrow for what we do, which we believe is you know, the current account, the lending, the deposits for, for mainly UK or UK centric people. We take a lot, a lot of inter international, but they would have a, a proper life here in the UK, if that makes sense. Um, in terms of pricing, I, there, we are definitely, uh, we would be uh, more expensive, uh, let's say on, on lending, um, but I would never advise somebody who had a very straightforward lending piece to do. Um, they wouldn't necessarily want to come to us. It is your more complex transaction, whether, as I said, it's the, you know, the, the farm next door, the house that you want to buy in a couple of weeks time, um, a house that perhaps you want to buy, but then put in your children's name or the grandchildren's trust, Anything that has any complication at all, and I'm meaning any, will take three to six months with the high street, particularly now during or post-COVID. Um, you go to the private bank for very quick service, 
very personal service and anything that is not 100% straightforward. And you end up paying a tiny bit more, but by Jiminy, it's worth it at the end of the day. Um, in terms of uh, investments, again, we have an investment operation where we are advising people of where the, what the best thing to do for them and their family. So it's very much around their whole, their whole life, uh, their risk appetite. We have a passive portfolio, which we run in-house, a global tracker portfolio. And if they want an active discretionary fund management um, for tax reasons or personal reasons, then we will introduce them to people that we feel are right for them. And then we will, most importantly, you, is we will then monitor that every, you know, the whole time, every three or four months. A lot of private clients will come to us saying they met somebody at a cocktail party or a dinner party. They were enamored, they bought the fund, they went into that particular stockbroker and nobody ever called them again. And they certainly weren't called when the market went down. And so again, it's that proper advice from somebody you trust, whether things are going well or not on the investments. Did I answer all the questions? Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, so Amarnath Singh uh, is returning to the theme of the sort of interplay between technology and relationship banking and asking, how do you see technology enabling your bankers to improve the service that they can deliver? Well, this is absolutely key to what we're doing and we're going to be investing probably at least 15 to 20 million pounds uh, in technology over the next five years. Um, and as I said, to put that into play, you know, in perspective, um, we're talking, you know, about a sheet of about one and a half billion, total capital of around about 45 million. So it's a lot of money, but that all of that investment is an, is to make, to make our clients, uh, sorry, our staff's lives easier so that they can spend more time talking to the customer. So rather than spending 50% of the time doing administration or whatever, if we can if we can free up any of their time by making their lives easier and more efficient, then they can spend a lot more time talking to the client, getting to know them, helping them, and uh, and delivering the service that we're we're about. And are you able to talk uh, you know, sort of any of the specifics or, or the examples of the uh, what your technology investment will deliver? Um, so we are with a large global banking software provider. Um, and as I think we all know, these, uh, these monoliths or megaliths seem to, you know, they it take quite a long time to change direction and are not nimble. Um, we and our staff and our customers need something that is that is more nimble and therefore we've spent um, a lot of time looking at more of a lego approach a fintech approach where we have a very robust engine chugging away at the background um, and then um, plugging in um, facilities apps various other bits and pieces that will deliver um, more of the front end and more of those efficiencies I was talking about before. Um, and so I think we will have relationships with and, and outsource uh, relationships with a lot of providers uh, rather than just one.
you've talked very eloquently about the sort of client centricity of, of the team and, and uh, putting clients first. And you clearly know your clients very well. What are the sorts of things keeping them awake at night at the moment? Um, uncertainty. I think that what I'm what I'm worried about, I think, is is talking ourselves into an even deeper recession. Um, if you look at Arco, which is our asset finance business, there are still plenty of little businesses there who are going great guns. Their order books are as full as they've ever been. They're looking to invest, they're wanting to invest, um, and there's some great opportunities out there. And as we know, um, you know, it's it's increasingly difficult to find good staff in, in skilled staff, whether we're talking in construction or the service industry or whatever. So there's lots of business out there and a lot of people doing well. And I think you know, if you every time you pick up the paper, it's talking about dire recession and the end of the world, then we're gonna talk ourselves into that. So I think it's that um, nobody likes uncertainty. And I think that's the issue. It's just putting off that investment decision, putting off that purchase decision um, that, um, that I think people are worried about. But um, we're, we're lucky generally in that a lot of our clients would have been successful, would have made money, would have sold a business. Um, they are therefore more concerned about staying rich, if I can call it that, rather than make me rich. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, again, if I might ask, what what does relationship banking mean to you? You're, you're the leader of this uh, entity, and we all know that the leadership sets the tone and style, and uh, inevitably colours the the culture of the place. So, how would you sum up what relationship banking means to you? Um, giving our clients what I would like. Yeah, I, as I said before, it is pretty simple. We all have banks. We all have to bank with somebody and we know exactly what good looks like and we know what rubbish looks like. And, 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 and that's my, that's what I try and do for 24 hours a day is basically give that or aspire to give that to our clients. It is, I think, pretty simple. Um, and I think a lot of it is around time. I think what we're trying to give people is their time back. So if we can make it simple, if we can, if they trust us to do it in their best interest, then they can spend the rest of the day and the rest of the year doing either making their business even more successful or spending time with their family or enjoying their, their success. Um, I think that's, that's the key. Go the extra mile, look after the car and give them time. Clearly, Weatherbees comes originally, as you described at the outset, from the racing world. But are you finding that you've got a, a client portfolio now that's increasingly not connected with racing, or is there still a strong overlap? Yeah, well, I mean, literally on whatever day it was, uh, in, back in 94, we woke up and 99% of the client base um, had a an involvement in racing but of course to be involved in racing they're not cheap these these four-legged beasts and um so our client base was already extremely spread from 
landed gentry and the dukes and duchesses, you know, all the way down to somebody who would worked incredibly hard all their lives and made a success of their business had been able to buy a horse or even a, a share of a horse with friends down the pub. So, um, you know, doctors and dentists and lawyers and farmers and, you know, it is, it is a very, very diverse. And, what, and the, the only thing that happens is, happened to be, is, is that they had a shared interest in that great sport of horse racing. Today, probably 90% of what we do is not directly related to horse racing. It's in our core, it's in our soul. Um, but um, a lot of, you know, we all have clients who, who don't like horse racing, don't like horses, never been racing. Um, so it is, it's now, it's sort of, it's part of our soul, but it's very not much, not part of the business model. To know that a third of racehorse owners go out of racing every year, I'm presuming you manage to keep hold of your clients rather more uh, longer term than that. Yes, I mean, you know, and we have had clients who, you know, as I said, were with us sort of even when we weren't a bank for many generations. Um, and, you know, genuinely there's, you know, because one of the questions I just remember um, from one of your, your audience was, you know, what's the competition with the high street? You know, they would leave us if we were not giving them a good service. Um, now, at the moment, the high street banks do not give a good service. I mean, during COVID, within four days, our clients were picking up the phone and getting through to us within three rings. This was right at the beginning of COVID. So the same services they had the week before. And as we know, the high street banks were appalling and couldn't get through for three days, let alone three rings. Um, so there's not a lot of competition out there in the high street in terms of service um and and you know they may be cheaper but if you add in the time spent trying to get through to somebody or try and get an answer or try and get a, a transaction done then they're considerably more expensive than we are however we are not going to lay on our laurels because they will get their act together we have got to presume that the high street will get its act together or we will presume that new digital banks or digital offerings will come in and try and um, compete and will compete. But as long as we give amazingly good service, then we hope that we will keep the clients and then importantly, make sure that our offering is right for their family, their children and their grandchildren. It's, you know, we're not a bank for old people. It's, it's, we've got to be a bank for, for across the generations. Now, you may or may not be able to answer this precisely, but Nicholas Bertels asks the kind of uh, key question, what minimum net worth and deposits are you looking for? <laughs> no, we can answer that. I mean, we are looking for a net minimum net worth of around five million pounds. So that is, and then we're not, uh, and just to be clear, other so-called private banks will talk about a figure, but they're meaning investable assets. We are not talking that, we are talking property, investments, anything that makes up the total sort of net worth, your own balance sheet. We will uh, have some wriggle room around that, particularly if somebody is on the younger end at the beginning of their career, um, you know, or, or part of a family that's, that's got a sort of bigger piece. 
in terms of the um, uh, the deposits, we are looking for a relationship, um, not very much actually, a minimum of three hundred thousand pounds in a combination of deposits, investments, or lending, and then that will get you free banking. So, so always good and then uh and then that's how we then build up a long-term relationship fabulous well i think we've time for one last question and it's again probably slightly unfair question but you're kindly here so we've had a tremendous turmoil 2021 2022 and 2023 as you've said does seem to be characterized by uncertainty but um can i ask you to look into your crystal ball for perhaps in the financial world how you see 2023 unfolding? Um, well, I've always been a glass half full type of person. Uh, we will see interest rates probably go up another couple of points to probably around about four and a quarter. I think we will then see them steadying around about that. I um, hope and believe things will settle down. I see that already we're seeing a little bit of a recovery in the pound. I, I do believe people will get their act together. I do believe that confidence will start returning. Um, I think that, um, as I said, seeing through our asset finance side and the business side, some really significant um, and exciting opportunities on that side. So I'm a, I'm a bull, I'm confident, and I think by the end of 23, I think things uh, hopefully will have settled down. Terrific, thank you. In fact, I have just seen one more question come in, so forgive me for uh, prolonging a bit further. But Mark Cook uh, is asking, do you have a spread of ages? Because certainly in his family, there's a suspicion of digital banking by the older members. They'll only telephone bank. It, uh, how, are you, how are you seeing the sort of profile of your clients? Uh, really interesting. I was talking about this yesterday. There is, you cannot generalize. We do have probably the average age of our customers about 52, but some of our older customers are considerably better at uh, surfing and uh, the digital world than some of our younger customers. Um, yes, there is fear around fraud in particular, but again, we are seeing um, that hitting both old and young. I think the great thing around um, the, what we offer is, is that ability to pick up the phone. If in doubt, they can pick up the phone and, and, and that is the important thing. And, and, and as I said, we can hear, you know, whether it's the tone, the type of conversation, um, and it's that reassurance that that request for X and Y is actually coming. Um, it is a nightmare. It is a nightmare, but um, we've the the fraud now by by telephone now is probably as bad as uh, as a pure digital. You you know we as you know you can you can steal somebody's phone number. You can you can clone it. You can sound like a bank. You can sound like a financial services institution. So I think it's just really that relationship. The stronger the relationship the less likelihood the fraud's going to be able to, you know, the fraudsters are going to win. Well, folks, I think we need to draw proceedings to a close. This has been an absolutely fascinating exploration of where relationship banking can sit with digital banking and indeed uh, your bank, Roger. Thank you so much. Uh, and I would, of course, like to thank our sponsors once again, because without them, we can't do any of this. 
Thank you very much to them. Uh, you can see on the screen there are a number of uh, excellent forthcoming events that uh, I would commend to you all. Um, and I would thank, in for now, finishing off, the audience for your attention wherever you are in the world. Uh, I would particularly like to thank Roger for his time and sharing his thoughts with us. Uh, and I wish you an outstanding rest of the day or the evening, wherever you are. Thank you very much indeed, folks. Thank you.